this week or late last week? One of the two. Um, I actually filmed the entire thing. And so I was going to just show it and come and sit with you guys. And I thought I'd do that. And I thought that would might be really, really creepy. And so I decided not to do it. But then Tim was like, hey, and you actually got done everything in 58 minutes? I think we should go with the video. So... <laughs> Um, but we're not going to. Instead, I'm going to kind of consider that to be a dry run, and we're going to kind of jump into this tonight. But be praying for uh, a, a huge group, I think. I think there was like about 58 or so, almost the entire staff. Right now, on, the only staff in the building, I think, are Sharon, me, and Morgan. We're the only ones that, uh, that didn't go. And so they're at what is known as uh, Right Now Media. Uh, it is the, you know, the, the, it's kind of like the Christian version of Netflix, you know, that you're all at. They put on a conference every year, and they have been so good to us. And so they kind of give us free tickets. And so we're able to go down and listen to some incredible communicators and some incredible powerful messages. And Ryan Vincent sends me videos and pictures of, we got to do this, and we got to do this, and we got to do this. So I'm a little bit nervous about them all coming back and me having to change my life. But... Um, to God be the glory. Why don't we uh, start with a word of prayer and then we're going to jump into this. We're going to be kind of unpacking the next section, section two on biblical literacy. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for the opportunity that we have to study it. And Father, I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to be transformed and changed. Uh, That God, we would recognize we need you uh, to understand you and us and our world. Um, That God, left to ourselves, left to our own culture, Um, At best, um, we can begin to discern certain things, but there's no way we could understand the truth about Jesus without you revealing him to us. And so we thank you for that. Thank you for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Thank you for the writings of Paul and Peter and John and James and Jude. So grateful for that. I'm grateful for the Old Testament prophets that um, shared stories uh, about you and your work with your people and that we can go back and find Um, insight and joy in seeing your faithfulness through the centuries. Um, So God, I pray um, that we would learn to appreciate your word for what it is and that we would submit ourselves to it uh, for your glory, uh, for our benefit and joy. We give you thanks. Amen. So um, I, in my previous life, when I was a, a college professor, I would have students that would say to me regularly, they would, they would make this comment. They would say, you know, what am I, because they're trying to sound spiritual, right? Uh, that's kind of what you want to do when you're a college freshman and you're in Bible college. You really want to sound spiritual. So one of the most spiritual things that students would say, and I never understood it. It always, it's somewhere between bothered me to offended me. But they would say this. They would say, I'm going to work really hard uh, in my time here at Bible college to not let the Bible become a textbook to me. Doesn't that sound deep for a college freshman to say? I really don't want the, Bi- I don't want the Bible to become a textbook to me. And A, I thought, you mean something that you're not going to (laughs) read? Is that what you mean by textbook? Because, but I think what they were saying, because when I would ask them, well, tell me what what you mean by that. And they were like, well, you know, a book that I read, but I never really integrate into my life. And I'm going, well, sure, like maybe some books are like that, but I don't think that's a textbook's problem. That's just a bad book. I think every book I read. Um, it doesn't have to be the Bible. Every book I read somehow molds and shapes me, and I, I want to integrate certain ideas into my life. I mean, that's called a good book. And then the Bible is the good of all, the, go- the goodest, the best of all the books. And so it becomes the, the, the umbrella, it becomes the foundation in which all other books are, uh, are, are, are decided upon. So I, I really would challenge you to not have that attitude like a college freshman. 
Um, but to consider the Bible to be a wonderful book, uh, a textbook in that sense, that it would come and speak truth to you, that it would come and mold and shape everything about you. And so uh, what I've done is I've, I've kind of given you that first page again, just in case you've lost your last one. We are going to be looking at that second one. Um, so the four pillars of discipleship, and we've kind of gone through that identity piece. And so tonight we're going to be starting, and I don't know if I'll be able to get it all done before Thanksgiving, but we'll see, uh, because when you come back in, in January and February and March and April, we still have to do spiritual formation and missional living. But I'm going to do my best to kind of hit this, uh, this as, as hard as I can over the next three weeks on the idea of biblical literacy. And so here is the idea. Here's one of the reasons why we consider it to be one of the four pillars. So identity is, this is who I am. And it's so important that we understand who we are. But let's, let, let's be honest. The one thing I assumed about who we are is that we're going to let the Bible speak that truth to us. Notice the assumption. All the way through our, our, our identity was we get our understanding of identity from the Bible. So p- point one just supposes or presumes point two. Okay, But point two is this. That in order to be a disciple, we must know the word of God and build upon its foundation as we serve Jesus faithfully. To be, to be biblically literate means properly interpreting, applying, and enjoying scripture. Okay? I need to be able to interpret it, i.e. know what it means. I need to be able to apply it, meaning that it's not just information that's disconnected, but it's actually applicational living. And the Bible, all of it, is applicational to our lives as, as followers of God and followers of Jesus Christ. And so we have to apply it. And then the other one that I, I usually add to that is the idea that there, there, there almost needs to be an enjoyment piece to truly enjoy the word of God, to, to have a desire for it. Because without that, I don't know if you'll ever really pick it up. I don't know if you'll ever really appreciate it or, 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 or even want to understand it. And yet, I'll tell you this. There was a young man in my life years ago. His name was Darren. And I just remember, Darren was one of the most honest guys to the point where it just made you nervous all the time. And weirdly enough, he was our lead minister's son. <laughs> and he was just kind of ah, out there all the time. Mountain climber, ice climber, just this kind of wild firefighter, just did the craziest things all the time. And Darren um, really kind of went through this great kid all the way through, kind of went through this crazy rebellious time. And then around the time that Andrea and I got married and the time that Andrea and I were really considering going into ministry, we struck up this close friendship with him and his wife, Joy. And it was really interesting to hear Darren just challenge me all the time. And he used to just say, I just don't even like, I don't like the Bible. I don't like reading the Bible. There's so many things I'd rather do than read the Bible. I'd rather go mountain climbing. I'd rather watch television. I'd rather mow the yard. I just don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't, people who understand it, I think they're lying because I don't know anybody who could possibly enjoy this book. Like, I know I'm not allowed to say this, but this is how I feel. And he would just, blah, just kind of all out. And so I think about him a lot because very seldom do I have somebody that honest. And he was trying. He really was. I believe that. I believe for years he was trying to figure out what to do with this book called the Bible. And although you might not be as brash or even maybe as you might not struggle like Darren, I think you can understand where he's coming from, can't you? This book's hard. It's really, really difficult. I pick it up and I just start reading in Ezekiel. I don't get it. This makes no sense to me. Um, And I would say if you pick up the book of Daniel and start in chapter 7 and you read it and you get it, you're weird, okay? Um, I I would actually argue you probably don't, unless the Holy Spirit's do something crazy on your mind, I'm thinking you really don't get what's going on in Daniel 7. I mean, there are lots of parts of the Bible 
that truly are, and I would, I would say this, they're like a good cup of coffee. It's an acquired taste. It is an acquired taste. The, the Bible actually speaks this way of it because the Bible says that the word of God is like a sharp double-edged sword that pierces, that divides joint and marrow. It exposes the intentions of the heart and of the mind. If you just enjoy that, <laughs> I almost think you have to have a love for God and appreciation for God in order to have a love and appreciation for the good book that he has given us. And so I, I sometimes when I'm, I'm talking with young people and I'm sharing with them faith, they love the idea of God and then they, they hit this book and it just kind of causes them to almost stop dead in their tracks. And I just, I hurt, I, my heart aches for them. And so one of the confessions that I want to just share with you is, is that I never had that, I didn't, I've always had actually, weirdly enough, I've always had a love for the word. And I think a lot of it had to do with my dad who just like loved the Bible like it was, like it was candy. My dad was just a, in that sense, just coming to faith, you know, uh, him and my mom coming to faith. My dad just was a, was a student of the word and just devoured it, devoured reading the word, would buy commentaries for fun. You know, that was my father. Not, by the way, everybody thinks my dad was a pastor. Not a pastor, but my dad was just that way. And I think me watching that had a really in, a strong influence on me as a kid. And so I've always enjoyed reading the Bible, except I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't always do it because there were other things that were more fun sometimes for me. Okay, like I, I do, I remember, like, I remember sports being a big deal to me. And so I, I think it's good for us to recognize that the Bible is an acquired taste. And it is my love for God that has made me pursue him through his word. And I want to just remind you of that. Like if you love the Lord your God and you desire to know him, then there's no way to do that without his word. There isn't. I'm sorry. It's just not possible. You have, if, you, if you love the Lord and you want to know him, and I, I mean, some of that, that, that most likely is you. I mean, it's a Wednesday night, okay, in November, and you're here in church. <laughs> and you don't have kids that have to, you have to drop off in the little area, right? So you're here because you love the Lord, I promise you. You're here because you love the Lord. Then you must pick up this incredible book that he has given you. And so I want to just share a little bit about like why, what, what the word of God is and, and how it came to us to maybe begin to encourage you a little more to want to understand it and to want to know what it actually is. So I want to give you some diagrams to just kind of help you understand why this book stands so different. I, when, I would, when I would teach a class in college called um, Christ and the Bible, we spent uh, an, entire or an entire semester looking at these two things. Why should this book stand heads and shoulders above every other? book and who is Jesus and why should he stand heads and shoulders above every other human who's ever lived so that basically it's the Bible and how it came to be and so whenever I began I've taught the class here a little bit I've, I've taught both sides of this particular class but um, one, one of the classes that we taught we called it origins another one we called it rooted um, I would ask I would ask students like where'd you get your Bible from do you know where you got your Bible from and they would just kind of look at me like do you mean like if I got it on Amazon like what do you mean by that I got mine at Walmart, or I got mine at Ruth's, or I got mine, you know, like, where did you get your Bible? I got it from the pew. You said I could take it. Why am I in trouble now? No, I'm not asking that. But have you ever just wondered, like, where did it come from? And does, does this baby Bible have a, have a daddy Bible somewhere, right? Like, this had to have come from somewhere. Something had to have existed before this existed. And so what, what did that look like? And then did that have something? And where did that come from? And so we're going to take a really kind of almost about a 
8,000 foot, not a 10, 30,000 foot, but about a 10,000 foot flyover of why the, where the Bible and how the Bible came to be and why it matters so much to us. So God does, I'm going to focus on this one here. So God reveals himself in two primary ways, okay? God reveals himself through his creation. And so when we look at his creation, when we look at, I, I, I lived for a lot of my life in the Rocky Mountains, and the Rocky Mountains are gorgeous. And so I, we would, Andrew and I would drive to church and we'd go down, remember the honey, we'd go down like to 14th Street, we'd go down 14th and we'd look to the, whatever this direction is west, um, to my right, and as, as we were driving to church, and we would see these mountains, this huge, long um, Rocky Mountain range, and it would just remind me of, wow, God made those. God spoke those into existence. He just majestic. I remember being a little kid and driving in the car with my dad, and we'd look out into the stars, and my dad would, would talk about how far those stars were away. And I just remember just being mesmerized by just how big the universe was. And how could a God make that? God must be just and God's bigger than that? How is God bigger than that? How is God bigger than everything that exists? And what's it, is there ever like a part of the universe and then if you go any further, you just, you're not in the universe anymore, but the universe isn't everywhere. So how does all, right? You know what I'm talking about? How do all of these things work together? This is creation. And, and by the way, this is what they call general revelation. It's you and I looking at the world and coming to an understanding of what it is. And it is helpful, and it reveals God. I pick up a little child, and I, I get a sense of who God is. Okay? That's, there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible actually says that. The Bible actually says in Romans chapter 1 that no one in the whole world, no one in the world is without excuse. For God has made himself, God has revealed himself in his creation so that no one can say, man, I just don't think there's a God. That's why atheism is new. The idea of atheism almost has to be taught. People you go to other parts of the world. Um, it's fascinating because I'll be in Africa or I'll be in Asia. And the concept of just walking into a godless society um, doesn't really exist in human history. Everywhere you go, people kind of look around and they go, we had to come from somewhere and there are gods and deities. And, and I would even argue that every world religion kind of uses this to develop its tenets of faith. This is what God is like. This is what God is like. This is what humans are like. This is what, and so Hinduism, and I would even argue Islam, it literally looks at general revelation and extrapolates off general revelation what God is going to be like. So world religions do this, by the way. I would say our culture does this in many ways. So this is not bad. God reveals himself, but there is something else that is important and that is needed, and that is special revelation. I love to ask, so I know that you can know that God is big or that God is powerful or that God is intricate or that God loves you. You can figure out some of those things by general revelation, but how do you know that Jesus Christ died vicariously for your sins and that you needed to put your faith in him and without putting your faith in him, then you cannot have eternal life? How do you get that by cutting down an oak tree and looking at the beautiful rings? You don't, do you? You need something else, don't you? And so that's basically what we have, is that God reveals himself through creation so that authors of the Bible and the audience that reads the Bible has this general revelation that comes in. I have a general revelation that comes to me, and I look at the universe, and I look at the Rocky Mountains, and blah, blah, blah. But then I have something else that God has given to me. And that is special revelation. God says, yeah, you never would have figured this out. You never would have known how I made the world. You never would have known that, that I am the one, that Yahweh is my name. 
You would never know that I am a covenantal God, and you would never know the true depths of my holiness and my righteousness from a tree or a spider or a whale, you know? And so God gives us both creation, general revelation, and then special revelation. And he gives this to us so that we might know who he is, okay? And so this whole idea here is the idea that God gives us his word, the Bible, Okay, so that's general and special revelation. So how does God do that? And that's kind of one of the questions that I want to, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about. So, so how does God do that? And we're going to kind of break it down a little bit more, but essentially this, that God, through special revelation, speaks to authors or moves by the Holy Spirit to authors and that God empowers them, enables them, gifts them, speaks to them so that they might communicate his truth to their audience. Meaning that God is actively involved. You cannot be a deist and believe in the Bible the way that Orthodox Christianity, when I say that, I mean like the way that the church, and even before the church, the way that the, um, the early Jewish communities, the way that they understood the word of God was that God's word was somehow, well, who's the author? And I, really, I could say there are two authors, right? There is the author of the Bible, and then there are the authors of the Bible. Okay? And that's what the Bible says. So when you look at it, who, 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 who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Well, they actually believe that Moses was the one who first penned that. Okay. And who wrote, who wrote First and Second Samuel? Well, that would be Samuel. But who gave Samuel the information? Who is the one that protected the information? Who is the one that guarded over the information? Who is the one that gave Samuel and Ezra and Nehemiah and the writer of Esther? Who is the one that did all of this? Oh, that would be God. And this is what makes the Bible different than a good book that you might read. This is what separates the Bible. This is why we would say, you need to commit this to memory. This you need to build your life around. This you need to trust more than your senses. This one you need to trust more than your mother. Okay? This one is just, it comes categorically different than everything else. Because God is the one who is actually doing this. Now, how does God do that? We're going to talk about that in a moment. Okay? Now, one other thing that I want to say, because this is, this is great, and it's kind of, I don't know if, we, we're, if you know what we're celebrating right now. It's the 500th year of the Reformation, the, the 95 Thesis that Luther nailed to the wall. And I'm very grateful for, um, for many, 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 many within the, the, the Catholic and the Roman Catholic faith. Very grateful for um, the heritage of, heritage of faith that we share um, and I, I want us just to kind of hold on to one of their ideas. And, and, and yet, Martin Luther says something pretty profound. I just think it's kind of in honor of the 500th year and in honor of what Luther did, but also in honor of what was done for the 1,500 years before Luther came along. And Luther wouldn't disagree with me on this, actually. I'm even kind of quoting much of, of Martin's ideas and understandings about this. Is that when God reveals himself to, his, to the authors, then God gives that word to the church, Okay, so God gives that to the church. And I'm kind of keeping that singular because I'm, I'm kind of describing that in terms of this leather, in, in this, at this level, in terms of the church as its leaders or leadership. And so God gives it. Here, 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 you need to. And by the way, this is true. The, the Bible, you read the Old Testament. Here, you are the priests. You need to hold on to this and that you need to teach, okay? 
um, that God gave the word to Paul and to the apostles and said, listen, you need to guard this. Paul gave it to Timothy and didn't go, hey, if you could just figure out a way to reproduce this, just kind of hand it out. He doesn't do that, does he? We did First and Second Timothy and Titus recently. It's like, guard the trust that has been deposited in you. It's like, it's like this needs to be protected. We throw around the Bible like, oh yeah, anybody can just pick it up and figure it out. Can we be honest? It's a little more complicated, isn't it? By the way, I still, I like the idea of just handing out the Bible, so don't get me wrong, okay? Still like that idea, but that is a complicated idea. So the, God gave it to authors, to the church, and, and, and then there is a sense in which the church, and this is kind of what has become debatable, is the church then helps the churches understand what it means. And so that's kind of what, um, if you were to look at it in terms of like how, how, how Catholic theology, and then particularly Roman Catholic theology, how it kind of operates, it's, listen, you can't just give somebody the Bible, what they actually need to help understand it. And so what I mean by this, how they would describe it, is you need to understand the traditions. And by the way, I do, by that traditions, I don't mean like, and, and so what day do we do this? And what, not that kind of traditions, but the theology of the church. It's known as the regula fide, the rule of faith. And so how do we know what Paul means in 1 Timothy? Well, the church tells us. How do we know what, what, what John meant in Revelation 5? Well, the church is going to tell us. I mean, God would not leave us alone. And so God has given us the church, and I'm grateful for the church and for the, for the rule of faith that has been given to us. And by the way, I actually believe that. I believe we need to listen to the rule of faith that has been handed down for 2,000 years. If you've been to my office, I got a lot of books there. I don't just have a Bible. I got a lot of books in, the, in my office. Um, I got a lot of books because there's a lot been, I don't know if you know this, a lot has been written about the Bible and about Jesus over the, over the last 2,000 years. Okay? I don't even have all the books. <laughs> Not even close. So I need to try to understand this. And so what Catholic theology says is that, listen, we need to have the traditions on one hand and then the Bible kind of on the other, and they work as two pillars that together work hand in hand as we move forward, okay? And, and by the way, I love that idealistically. Martin Luther even said, I love that idea. Martin Luther didn't go, that's a dumb idea. Martin Luther said, no, I love that idea. And then Martin said, okay, and he wasn't the first one, by the way, to say this. <laughs> Guys were, people, men and women, but mostly men, were saying this for, for hundreds of years before, okay? John Huss said the same thing. Wycliffe said the same thing. But what happens when the church gets it wrong? What happens when the church takes a, a scripture or the church begins to do something and it's wrong? Who corrects it? That's what all I want to know. That's what Martin said. That's what John Huss said. That's what John Wycliffe said. That's what William Tyndale said. Who's going to hold her, the church, accountable? And Martin and others said, the word of God does. The word of God. It is the apostles' teaching that holds the church in check. And that became their, that became their battle cry. Now, obviously, you, you get the complexity of that, right? But can you see their love for the word of God? What can keep Jim in check? It, it doesn't go, Terry Carpenter, that's who can keep Jim in check. Gary Thomason, you know, that, that he can keep Jim in check. How about Gary and, uh, and, and Terry and Larry and, and, and all the other Larry and Gary and Jerry's and Terry's and all that stuff? How about all those guys? Can they keep Jim in check? And the answer is, well, maybe, but what, who keeps them in check? And the answer is what? The word of God. 
That's why I'm actually fundamentally, as much as I really do genuinely appreciate my, my Catholic, my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, I am a Protestant in that sense. I believe the word of God stands over the church traditions. Okay? So that's kind of where that comes from, and we can actually see that. Why? And so look at, uh, I believe, I hope I put it in, in your notes. I know it's in my notes. Definition of inspiration, you do have it there, right? So I want to read this to you. So what do we mean by this, this inspiration, what, that, what, what God is doing with the authors? Here's what he's doing. It is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on the writers of Scripture. So God's active work on Paul and Ezra and, and Isaiah, it is that kind of influence that rendered their work an accurate record of God's revelation or that resulted in what they wrote as actually being the infallible word of God, an infallible meaning without error, okay, in essence, without error. It's got no falsehood in it. Meaning that God is, since God is perfect and that God is good, um, Moses could have made a mistake and Paul could have made a mistake and Isaiah could have made a mistake, but God can't make a mistake. And so God comes in and God protects, God maintains. And it is his character that, um, that bleeds into the pages. This is what we believe. I know this sounds crazy to some people, not to me, but it sounds crazy to some people, but that God exerts his powerful influence over this word. And that's why we treat it different. Um, I, I remember, I've, I've used the story a million times. It always comes to my mind. Um, my wife comes from a family that has faith in it, but some of the people in her family are not as devoted as my wonderful wife is. And so my wife and her sister got into a kind of a heated dis disagreement one time. And finally, her sister just kind of somewhat, I don't know, she wasn't mad, but she kind of just shot back at Andrea. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Everything for you is from the Bible and about the Bible. Why don't you think for yourself? Okay, and I, anybody else kind of feel like that sometimes? It's kind of like you're carrying around your mommy with you, you know? And why can't you grow up and think for yourself? And so sometimes we can almost feel that way. And I would actually argue that's actually not a bad way to think. I, I kind of got involved in that whole conversation and I began to ask her, you know, if, if, if you think it sounds crazy for me to believe this book that's been around 2,000 years and trusted by over a billion people, and it has been proven true over and over and over again. Can you give me, fine, give me something better to base my life upon. What do you got for me? Oprah's book of the month? Like, no, but think about it. Like, honestly, give me something else. I asked her that question. I wasn't trying to be a smart aleck. I mean, I, I get her struggle. Give me something that tells me who I am and where I came from and what is the difference between right and wrong and what happens when we die and why. Give me something. And she looked at me, and honestly, this is one of the great, beautiful answers that the, that the church has. She said, I don't really have anything for you. Like, all I have, I guess, is like my thoughts about the way the world is. And I just went, like, that sounds crazy to me. <laughs> that you would want me to base my life around what you, or even what I think. That just sounds ludicrous to me. That would terrify me. I'm 49 years old. You think I can understand the complexities of life by myself? And so pick up another book. I've done this. I've got copies of the Quran. I've got copies of the Book of Mormon. I've read Bhagavad Gita. I've read the Hindu. I've read all of these scriptures. Read them. Take up and read them. I'm so grateful for the Bible. And God, that I believe exists, comes through these pages. 
And that's why I love it. That's why I find great joy in it. Now, so how does this happen? And, and, and this is going to matter as well. I might be in a little bit of trouble, Tim. Um, here is what I want you to see is that there is, in terms of the theories, this is going, this actually matters a little bit. Um, what, what, what I want to look at right now is what are some of the theories of inspiration? And you should have in your sheet uh, kind of a, a spectrum that we're going to take a look at. Uh, started the wrong one. From this side of the spectrum, we're going to say it's all God, not man. And then on this side of the spectrum, we're going to actually say it is all man, not God. Now, interestingly enough, the, the Bible, um, and, and even, even for the, uh, the time when the, when the Jewish community came together, uh, before the time of Christ, actually, to begin to try to ask what scriptures they wanted to hold on to, it was a, a kind of a famous council that they had known as the Council of Jamnia, where the, where the Jewish religious leaders came together and said, what, what books stand over and above other books? And so um, there's, this, is, this has happened with people of faith throughout the centuries. Um, they didn't actually start on this side and then as they went through time walk down into this direction. That's actually not how, how it happened. Um, they kind of started almost kind of in the middle. And then as we grew up or as we grew older as a community of faith, we kind of went in both directions. So it's kind of interesting. It's not, and then as we became more educated, we moved from believing in God to not really believing in God. It's really not that way. Um, they kind of started in the middle where they kind of recognized there was a God element and then there was also a human element. And so this goes all the way back, you know, thousands of years where they would recognize, wow, Isaiah's written different than Jeremiah. Those must be two different people, okay? Meaning that obviously there had to be some kind of a human element that existed in there. And so they recognized that. And so what I want to do is I'm going to kind of start on this side and work all the way through. But time-wise, it did not happen. This is not a timeline. These are just different views. So I want to kind of start way over here and kind of far, far, far on this end, maybe kind of right on the very end, is known as that intuition, the intuition model. And the intuition model basically says that what these people had was a high degree of insight about the world. And so, yes, there is a God. Hear me. I mean, they're, they're, these aren't atheists. There is a God, but the great Bible writers, and we really don't even know who wrote them, and, and mo many of them would even argue that um, the, the four books that really almost nobody debates, literally nobody debates, the most liberal, 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 liberal scholar will still credit Paul with Romans, First and Second Corinthians, um, and Galatians, those four books. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans. Nobody doubts that Paul wrote those. Okay? Um, others, they, they begin to, to wonder and believe that maybe they were created by. And so if you read it, if you say anything on the Discovery Channel, they've got, you know, the supposed author of Matthew or the supposed author of, of, of Genesis. Um, but basically, whoever it is that wrote them, okay, even, even Paul, if he wrote them, um, Paul was just this really insightful guy that somehow could just kind of get it, you know, kind of like this, kind of like a really good counselor, you know, he just speaks this, this wisdom. And so there really is an all man, not God scenario. Um, one of the ways that I like to describe this idea is that you really have like almost like a theological artist or a theological genius. Um, Einstein was good with numbers and Paul was good with God, okay? But it wasn't that God is doing this 
powerful influence. He doesn't need the Holy Spirit to breathe in him to guard his writings. No, and, and that's why I have, a, I have a book called Conservative, Moderate, Liberal, and it's not, about, um, it's not about political issues. It's about their views of Scripture. And in this book, uh, so liberal, liberal scholars, conservative scholars, and uh, actually one of, my, one of my professors was the guy that wrote the conservative section, got his PhD from Princeton, and so he was kind of could hang out with the big boys and girls, but definitely had a completely different view. And um, the, the, the woman that wrote the article on the most liberal side, I'll never forget what she wrote, because she said... You know, the Bible gives us this from the Apostle Paul uh, in the book of Philippians, that whatever is pure and noble and whatever is praiseworthy, let your mind dwell on these things. Like, that's good stuff. And what we need to be able to do as Christians is to take those words from the Apostle Paul and use them to judge Scripture itself. And so if there's something in the Scripture that you don't like, that is not praiseworthy, like God killing people, like in a flood, then you need to get rid of it. Like if there's something that you don't like, like that God would allow his son to die on a cross, then you can look at that and go, that is not praiseworthy, this divine child abuse, a term that actually people use in theological circles. You jettison it. No, you want more of like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now that's beautiful. Nobody, nobody, nobody doesn't like that one. So we, we keep those ones. And so you use, that, that's the mindset, which means what? That in the end, there really is no God element here. These are just flawed humans doing their best, take what you like, don't, and, and, and by the way, there are churches in Stillwater, there are churches around America, there are churches around the world that have this view of the Bible, intuition, okay? The next one, kind of along the line, is they, there are some people that go, well, that, that, that's crazy, that doesn't make any sense. And so they talk about, it's not that, it's illumination. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because what's, what's very fascinating is, is that you'll see as we kind of walk through, um, there are people that are just almost splitting hairs. <laughs> so interestingly enough, this view became really popular in about the 1600s all the way up to today. Okay? Um, there are many that have kind of this idea. Okay? Uh, many, 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 many. Thomas Jefferson being one of them. Kind of had this view. Really had a hard time with the miracles. And so loved the teachings of Jesus. But the Jefferson Bible totally gutted any kind of a miracle. Just didn't believe that that should be in there. Thought those could be kind of, they were kind of crazy stories. And so kind of hand selected different things to kind of fit. But by the way, it also happened in 146 AD with a gentleman by the name of Marcion. And so it's been going on for a long time. These are just flawed authors. So this idea existed for a long time. And in about the 1900s, interestingly enough, in Germany, um, right around between the wars, actually, there were some scholars that began to go, this is causing some problems. When you don't have, like, God more intimately involved in the word, you really kind of mess up. And so they began to almost go back in the 1900s. It was called neo-orthodoxy, a new way of looking at orthodoxy. You might have heard the name like Karl Barth or maybe even Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, so some great, by the way, I believe even some Christian people, I think they didn't quite understand the fullness of what the word of God was, but I'll let God ultimately be their judge. I'm just a brother. So there is this illumination idea basically saying it's not that far out there. Actually, God is more involved. Now, sure, maybe not every word is right, and maybe not every idea is right, but man, I'm really uncomfortable with jettisoning everything. I'm really uncomfortable with giving up on this, and I'm really uncomfortable with giving up on that. But I really think that in the end, 
The Bible is flawed. I don't, like, I don't know if I like this story. This story, I don't know if I like as much. But the truth is, we got to hold it better. And so there are some inconsistencies in their thinking, and so there was a lot of debate about that. But really, what I, I love one comment that was made about this, um, because there was a, this, this is also known in the church's history as the battle for the Bible. That was very popular, the battle for the Bible. And, and by the way, it was this battle that caused a lot of our great institutions that were started as preacher schools. You've probably heard of them. Harvard. And it was started, another school was started when Harvard went wayward. You probably heard of it. It became a big preacher school, Yale. Okay? And then as Yale became more liberal in its theology, another one was actually started. Have you heard of it? Princeton. (laughs) So these were actually preacher schools. And um, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s, or late 1800s, known as B.B. Warfield, who was actually this big proponent on battling for the truth of Scripture, battling people like this, going, the Bible is not like this, out of the, out of the Ivy League school. So it's kind of interesting how, how deeply entrenched it is, even within American educational history. And so when you have this idea, I like what one person said, that the difference between these two and the other three is actually a matter of degree, not kind. So I want you to think about that for a moment. It's a matter of degree, not kind. Meaning that this here is one kind of revelation and this here is another kind. And so this is, the Bible has mistakes, but there are less. This one, the Bible has mistakes and there are more. And at some point in time, and this is the problem when you have like spectrums, there is somewhere on the continuum where there's a group of people that go, I don't believe in mistakes. I just don't believe in mistakes. Like the Bible actually doesn't have mistakes. It doesn't have contradictions. It can be trusted in all of it. It can be trusted. And so there is kind of this dividing line. And so I want to move over to the next one. And the next one is known as dynamic. This has probably been, there's, there's a lot of debate about this, right? You can debate about anything. I'm trying to give you the information as, um, as, as fairly as I possibly can, okay? Um, this has actually been around for a really, really long time. And what it does is it, is it has... This God is ultimately the author. God is ultimately the one in charge. But he allows everyone to kind of express themselves in their own way. He allows John to sound like John and Paul to sound like Paul and Moses to sound like Moses and Isaiah to sound like Isaiah. And God in his sovereignty protects everything that they say and everything that they do. He holds it all together. And yet he allows them to be them. So for example, could John, under the writing of the Holy Spirit have some, some batter grammar. I'm, I'm telling you, the record says yes. <laughs> John, is, um, John makes some grammatical mistakes. So when we talk about the Bible being without error, do we mean that God... But you can see the problem, right? So, so what is God ultimately protecting? And so in this middle view is, listen, it is all true. It is all right. You, you, you can't jettison any of the ideas. Every part of the Bible needs to be understood. Every part of the Bible needs to be appreciated. And yet, every author has their own. So it's, it's the, the problem about going down here is all of these have all God ultimately and then varying degrees of man's influence 
under God's sovereign protection. Does that make sense? And the dynamic idea is, is that there is a lot of room and there is a lot of freedom. I remember a graduate professor saying, you know, the, the, the theology Paul would, would develop, this might make you uncomfortable, Paul's theology develops from when he writes, say, Galatians early in his ministry to when he writes Titus later on in his ministry. So let me ask you a question. Could Paul's understanding of Jesus Christ grow over 20 years of doing ministry? Yeah. See, that doesn't bother me, actually. But I, that was a bit of a new thought for me, right? Because when you, I, well, all the Bible's true. What do you mean, grow? How can it grow? If it's all true, it has to grow. But no, I think it can grow, actually. And so there are those then kind of down the line that really have a hard time with this. And so there's another says this, no, not only is there more of a dynamic influence, meaning that God is kind of giving a lot of room. No, God gives everybody the exact words to say. God gives everybody. So a verbal inspiration. God literally says, okay, Tom, are you ready? Here's the next word. I want you to write in. Tom writes in. The, the, beginning, beginning. Keep going. Are you ready, Tom? And so that's how God kind of gave it, which, by the way, kind of leads to our definition way over here, which is the dictation theory. By the way, I have a really, really, really hard time differentiating between these two. So it's okay if you go, well, what's the difference between verbal, where God gives them every word, and dictation, where God, the, the dictation model literally is, is that there is no influence of the human writer on the text at all. The only thing I would say to that is, and I remember the first time I translated the Gospel of John, and then I tried to translate the Gospel of Mark, I just thought, these these are not the same person. <laughs> they just don't, they don't sound the same. I mean, one is easy and the other one is more different. And then by the time I got to trying to translate the gospel of Luke or the writer of Hebrews, it was like, okay, I need, I can't do this anymore. I need some help. I need like, I needed my fifth year or my fourth year of Greek to be able to translate the book of Hebrews. Probably the most complicated book in the New Testament to translate. John is, I mean, honestly, when you read John, if you can go back and look, if you want to see my notes, you can look at my translation of it. It's see Jesus, see Jesus run, see Jesus run down the hill. I mean, it really is, and yet, hear me, don't get me wrong. When I say that, I'm not saying it's not deep. I am the light of the world. It's, it's profoundly deep. It's profoundly philosophical. When I say that, I'm not talking about that the theology is thin. No, it's profoundly deep, but the grammar is really, really simple. The vocabulary is really, 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 really simple, okay? And so that is where you actually see that there is this influence. And again, the biggest thing that I would tell you is where, where, you're gonna, where, we, where we saw this, and it's, it's a little bit of a kind of a dying breed, is you really saw it very, very popular in the 60s and 70s as a little bit as a reaction to all of this. So within fundamentalism that existed, which by the way, I'm very grateful for my fundamentalist brothers and sisters. May not agree with them, glad they stuck out for the fight. You know what I mean? I really am grateful for the fight that they fought, okay? But what's interesting is, is that they really kind of got tied into a, a, a particular way of looking at the Bible and reading the Bible and even a translation of the Bible that I think just overspeaks what's actually happening. And the more that I go back and I look at history, it seems like this is what everybody always knew and understood. You go back hundreds of years. John Calvin understood this. Um, Augustine understood this, that God was protecting, that the, God breathed his word and his truth into the Bible, and those things were actually given to us through these human writers that God protected. How he did it, by the way, what's also interesting is, is that there are parts of the Bible that are dictation. 
And that exists within here. This, this believes that at some times, like how else could people get certain information that nobody else knew but God, right? So sometimes God went, yeah, Tom, like you, you, I, this one I just need you to write, pick up a pen, I need, you to just, I need to just give you this one word by word. So within the dynamic, it really has within it those moments when God is saying to Isaiah, thus say to the people, the word of God says, that's like, that's dictation time for all of them. You know what I mean? That is dictation time for all of them. When Jesus Christ speaks and then the Holy Spirit guides, I believe that in many cases, that's dictation time for many of them, okay? So that exists within this one. So you might wonder, well, what about those times when who would have, yeah, that actually exists within here, okay? But can I tell you, um, should the Lord lead you to another church? Can I tell you, a conversation you must have with the church's pastoral leadership and elder leadership is, tell me your view of the Bible. Tell me how the Bible stands as inspired by God and infallible. And if you don't have that conversation with your church, you're being irresponsible. You really are. You're being irresponsible. You need to have that question. I love answering that question. Um, And and by the way, um, I believe, this is where it gets a little bit complicated, I believe that you can still kind of get it right in a wrong way and, and be like saved on the other side, okay? I don't agree with the position, right? But the Bible never says you must have this agreement about the Bible in order to be saved. It says you have to have this understanding of Jesus. I consider this entire area though to be a very dangerous place to live. I just, I don't, I can't do it consistently. I can't, I can't go into this world how do I know what sections of the Bible I need to hold on to? How do, I, how do I read the Bible? Why would I read the Bible? And that's why when I get really excited about guys like Bart and Bonhoeffer and a whole bunch of, of, of theologians that I really do enjoy reading and still learn a lot from them, I find them, if I can say this, because, and hear me, they're smarter than me. So it's not a matter of intelligence. They're much, they're German, so they're much smarter than me. I'm just Canadian. And so in this, in this bandwidth of, of, I would argue, genuine believers that have a real hard time understanding how all God holds us all together, um, I, I find them being kind of rather inconsistent in terms of what they hold to in terms of the scriptures. I, I would even, if I, if I could even talk to like a, a, a Bart or a, Don, or a Bonhoeffer, I would say, you guys say it's not, but then you preach like it is. You say it's, it's, it's got mistakes, and yet when you stand up and you preach and you're calling God's people to stuff, you're all of a sudden, you're really doing this a lot. I don't know how you do this with something that's flawed. Can you tell when I'm preaching on Sunday that I kind of believe what I'm reading from the text, right? And by the way, many great preachers that come from this position, they preach like that. And I kind of go, I think you would preach it with less pound the pulpit. So let me just kind of do one more thing here. Let's talk about inerrancy. Um, because that really argues that the Bible is truly without error. Um, and so the, other, the inspiration is God's activity on the word, and then God's activity is to the point where it is truly without error. Now, I mean, especially in our day and age, beginning in about the 1600s, with the rise of the Enlightenment and modernity and then post-modernity, this is one of those things of, what do you mean there are no errors? Well, first of all, let's just kind of define it and then take a look at what I mean by that. The Bible... And then this is where it gets kind of complicated. When correctly interpreted in light of the level to which its culture and the means of communication it developed at the time it was written and in view of the purposes to which it was given. Okay, what does that mean? That means that, hey, when we talk about the Bible being without error, 
We're not saying that there aren't figures of speech that are used or when it, it, it doesn't really do this, but you do know like many within like theology believes that like the, the whole idea of like whether or not the sun is the center of the solar system or the earth is the center. I mean, they use Bible verses to try to describe this, right? We're not arguing when we say it, it's inerrant that it was somehow like true over and above its culture when it's trying to speak like that. We need to understood each particular biblical idea as it was relayed from the author to those audiences, and we believe those are true. The Bible actually, you know, think about this. The Bible um, has within it things that are said that are false because there were false prophets, right? Think about that, right? So there are things that are in the Bible that are false, but they're conveyed as though they're false. Do you see the difference? They're conveyed. This is false. This is a false teaching. This is not true. And that's actually in the Bible. And so you must understand the Bible as it's being given by the author to the particular audience. So there are very, there is a good group of, of, of individuals who are not just trying to not think through this. They're saying that when we look at the Bible and when we look at it in its, and, and this is kind of a key word, in its original autographs, The original autographs are the, the, the biblical uh, manuscripts that Paul and Peter and John and James would have actually written in, okay? That if we were to go back and look at those, we believe those are, are without error. Um, I've, I've given you a couple of great texts here, and I'll just, kind of, I'll just kind of tell you. If you look in your Bible for these verses, you'll be surprised, okay? The first one is Matthew chapter 6, 13, um, because it's the Lord's Prayer. So you guys know the Lord's Prayer? How does the Lord's Prayer end? For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. But if you turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, guess what you're going to find? None of that. It's not in your Bible. Okay? And so that actually is a later edition that was, that was put in there. And so when we're talking about the Bible is without error, we're not saying that there have, that all of the manuscripts, there's basically just one manuscript and all of them have been kept all the way through. We're not saying that. We're actually arguing, yeah, there are cases. If you look in your Bible for Mark chapter seven, verse 16, okay? And I, by the way, I, I like to be the one to tell people this so that it's not some kind of college professor or your buddy who doesn't believe in the Bible kind of surprises you with this stuff in a, you know, at, a, at, a, at an Aspen coffee moment and you kind of feel like, wow, how, how come Jim didn't tell me this? No, I want you to, you can go take a look. Mark chapter seven, verse 16, the verse isn't there. And you want to know why? Because it looks like it was added. I actually had to research this one a little bit. It was probably added in the sixth century um, by, uh, by, by a priest that was trying to have kind of a, um, a way of describing a little bit more of, of how they need to understand it. It's, it's, they're trying to kind of link it together with Matthew's, if, for he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And so they kind of want it to sound, because it's parallel as in Matthew, they take the words from Matthew and they add it to Mark, but the earliest manuscripts don't actually have that. There's another famous one in John 5.4. If you go to John 5.4, you look, John 5.3, John 5.5. 5. Where's John 5.4? If you look down at the bottom, by the way, you'll actually see it in your Bible. They want you to know where it is, so you're not just all freaking out about it. Why are they taking verses out of my Bible? And then the last one is Acts chapter 8, verse 37. That's the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And 837 does not exist in your Bible. And it looks like also a, a sixth century edition, addition, 
It's only found in the Ethiopian, um, kind of the, the Ethiopian lineage of texts. And it looks like they wanted to add the phrase, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. No, he who believes must believe Jesus with his whole heart. And so he said, I believe in Jesus the Christ. Um, a phrase that never appears anywhere else in Luke. And it looks like uh, the earliest manuscripts don't have it. So it's not in any of the manuscripts that we have from the 3rd century, the 4th century, the 5th century. It appears in the 6th century. And why? It looks like it was a, um, an addition that was made by adding to it. Um, and so, by the way, I, I, I want people, I want Christian people to understand that these things exist within the Bible. I know some people kind of get a little bit nervous. Like, why do you tell people this? And I'm going, because we're not afraid of the truth. We're not afraid of the truth. We're not afraid of letting people know. Um, there is a war for our minds. There is a war for our children's minds. And we must actually give them the truth in terms of how the Bible came to be. Um, I have this personality within me. I don't know if you do. But if you were to tell me, hey, like if you just go behind that door, you'll actually find out if there is or is not a God. Now the problem is you can't, when you come back on the other side, you, you can't take away what you know. Kind of like from in the Matrix, remember with the two pills? Once you, once you take the pill, you can't go back. Like, I'm always taking the pill. Like, I don't care. I've got it. And so when I'm in grad school and I'm, I'm in college and I'm trying to deal with deep things about how the Bible came to be, I'm not good at just pretending. I'm just not good at just going, I'm just going to have to take this one. And I'm not saying I don't take things on faith. No, I, I truly, I still have to always take things on faith. I'm going to always have to believe certain things. But I believe in the pursuit of these truths and that God always reveals himself. And the more that I have studied how the Bible came to be and the more that I've looked at it and the more that I've studied it in its original languages, the more I am convinced that we have the inerrant, meaning that the Bible is without errors. Um, I'll give you a fun statistic and then I'll try to close out. I think I'll miss it by about five minutes, but I'll let you go on time. Um, we, we, can actually, we can actually come to an understanding of what the original autographs are in the New Testament, okay, the Old Testament's a little bit of a different animal, but the, in the, to the New Testament, the amount of manuscript evidence is so profound that we can, we can recreate the original autographs of the 27 books of the New Testament to the letter. The, the, here, this, is the, this is the low end, okay? This is the kind of the, the, the broadest it would be, 98.6%. We know it to the letter. Some would say it's into like the 99.4 is the highest I've seen. The, the most liberal, so to speak, is that we know to the letter. And I was kind of going through a book in my office. I can also show you if you want to come take a look at it. I had some students after our triunity class. Um, I can even take you to where the 1.4% are if you want. And it's fascinating. And so I just sat with these college students and I got out this book and I said, hey, if you want to see where all these amazing errors are, like, you know, one of them is like when it's describing a word um, and it's describing the word of Jesus Christ, like you'll sometimes get Jesus and you will sometimes get Hason. Ooh. Like literally, that's how, that's how meticulous the New Testament, um, the, the, the scholars that are trying to put it together, they love to point out, wow, there's a whole family tradition where Jesus is spelled this way and a whole family tradition where Jesus is spelled this way and we just want you to be, want, want you to be honest about that, that there's two different spellings. 
That is how meticulous. That's, I mean, I'll tell you, I think I've told you this before. Um, I'm, I'm one, of my, one of the men, I've, I've never met him. He died, uh, never got a chance to meet him. His name is Bruce Metzger. And I am indebted to him for eternity um, in terms of the work that he did to produce the Bible. Um, the ESV, um, he, a lot of the work that he did helped kind of lay the groundwork for this. And I just, I kind of got overwhelmed in the class one time, just started crying as I'm thinking about Bruce Metzger. <laughs> Because here's this man that devoted his life to, to get it right down to the letter. Wow, that's just amazing. So grateful for that. So what are some things that we can take away from this? Uh, these implications are absolutely huge. Um, and this is where you kind of get to take it home. This is the part that I want you to realize that, um, and when we come back, we're going to kind of break this down a little bit more. But, you know, the Bible is a number of things. Contrary to what a lot of people want to say, um, we believe this strongly as a church. There's not an elder, there's not a staff member, there's not a church leader. Um, I would even say that if you don't believe in these things, I mean, you're always welcome here. We're not, we're not this kind of exclusive, you have to think just like Jim kind of mentality. That's not who we are. Okay, that's not who we are. But these are kind of things that we believe strongly because it's what the Word of God says. So you don't have to, you don't have to agree with Jim, but you have to agree with the Bible. That's kind of a mandatory thing, right, Tom? You have to agree with the Bible. If not, you're getting me out. Okay, yes, we're all still on that one. So number one, the Bible is authoritative. In essence, like what it says goes. We must obey it, okay? And so we can debate it. We can talk about it because there are differences of interpretation and even differences of application, but in the end, we're both going to go to the Bible. We're both going to look at the Bible. When Jim and Gary have a difference of opinion, we don't sit there and argue opinions. We go back to the Bible and back to the Bible and back to the Bible. Why do you do that? We go back to the Bible and back to the Bible and back to the Bible because it is authoritative. And it speaks and we, we follow to the best of our ability by the Holy Spirit's guidance and direction too, by the way. Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. Holy Spirit dwells in me. He will help us along. That's why when you look at how uniform the church has been over 2,000 years, wow. I know you, you might have this opinion. I did for a lot of years that the church was just all over the place. That's actually not as true as you think it is. I know there are differences of opinion, but when you begin to kind of narrow them down, it's kind of like, yeah, we all love football. You might like OU or OSU, but we all love the game of football. And you might like the two-man option, and I might like the three-man option, but we all love the game of football. And by the way, that's even more loose than what the church can look like at times, especially the Orthodox church. So the Bible is authoritative. Number two, the Bible is necessary. Going back to the special revelation, like we need the Bible. If we don't have the Bible, we're lost. If we don't have the Bible, we're in trouble. If we don't have the Bible, then all we've got are Jim's insightful comments. And so it is necessary. That's why we preach through Bible books. We did a podcast recently on Consider This, talking about why do we, and this was a little bit of a change. When I first came here, we did more topical series, and we'll still do them occasionally, but we went, no, we need to go back, and that's why you guys had to endure two years through the, through the gospel of Matthew. Um, right now, we're in one, but if you notice, even the kings and the prophets, hey, this week, it's open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Daniel, mostly in Daniel 4. And we're going to look at a big chunk of scripture. Why? Because we believe it's necessary. It's necessary to read and to teach. The Bible is also sufficient. Okay? Meaning we don't need anything else. Now, when I say we don't need anything else, it's not that we don't use other things. It's not that we don't use other uh, traditions or the regular fide, the rule of faith. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it is sufficient. It's the reason why I like to know that there is a Bible in every hotel room in America as the Gideons continue to just go crazy. 
We'll be taking up an offering here in a couple of weeks for the Gideons again. We do it every year. Why? Because I really am Protestant enough, and more than that, I am a Christian enough to believe the Word of God does not need even my pale commentary. It is functioning all on its own. I love that. The Bible itself is sufficient. You can take it up and read it and get what you need to get, and I believe the Holy Spirit will assist to figure out how to find faith in Jesus Christ. I actually believe that. And so if you can't, if you can't figure out to how, hear, how to hear Jim or Paul or Ryan or whoever, you pick up the Bible. If you ever get bored in a sermon, my mom and dad taught me this, if you ever get bored in a sermon, the one thing we were always allowed to do as children, okay? Um, we didn't have iPhones back then, but the one thing we were always allowed to do as children, we, was, we were always allowed to lead, read our Bible. My dad would say, oh, you're having a hard time paying attention to the sermon? Read your Bible. Can't go wrong there. Preacher can get it wrong. Bible can't get wrong. Okay? I, I, I still say that. You ever get bored listening to me? Read your Bible. That's always going to be good. Next, the Bible is clear. One of the reasons why I say this is, is that we love to talk about, yeah, there's so many different interpretations, and there's so many. Okay, I get it. Like, even, even within, like, the Reformation and, and the, the Reformed churches, like, in terms of how God proactively and in his sovereignty works all things in accordance. Sure, like, me and John Calvin might disagree, but we disagree on degree, not kind. Do you see the difference? how God exactly worked those things out. Sure, we might have a disagreement. Whether or not baptism is the last act of a saved man or the first act of an unsaved man. Sure, or, or, I got that backwards, but you know what I mean. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah, Jim and Jeff can have a conversation about that. That's absolutely fine. But in the end, we pick this up and we understand, actually, it's pretty clear. When you read the Bible, that's why I love to say to people when they come to my office and they, they, got, they, they got this disagreement. I love to just say, well, let's just read and see what the Bible says. Pick up the Bible, we start reading it. For the most part, honestly, so much of it is, is self-explanatory. This is also known, if you want a fancy term, the purposcuity of Scripture. If you want to just kind of say, you're, you know, you're having coffee at Aspen and they're going, the Bible's hard, nobody can understand it. Oh, actually, but the doctrine of the purposcuity of Scripture says that one can understand it. They won't know what that is. So, the Bible is clear, even though the word purposcuity is not. And lastly, the Bible is unified. Meaning that the Bible has one message. And so I don't believe the Bible contradicts itself. I believe the Bible has one message. From the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. That it, now by the way, it might be difficult. And I might have to literally go, wow, I'm going to have to wait for Jesus to explain this. Because I don't know how those two things fit together. But the one thing I do know is that since God is one and his message is one, that that message is one. And I don't know how those two things fit together. I just do know they do fit together. It is one message, which means you and I get to do the hard work, the difficult work of trying to understand actually how that works, or even the better work. Let me close with this. With the better work, I did it, Tim. With the better work, where I get to say, I don't understand how it works, but I don't need to understand how it works, because God is the one making it work, and so I'm just going to sit here and follow it. That, I would argue, takes maturity. And maybe that's why Jesus says, unless you become like a child, not ish, like, not childish, not foolish, but <laughs> you do trust God. Make sense? I hope so. When we come back next week, we're going to continue to talk about how we can understand the scripture a little bit better. We'll see you Sunday. We're in the book of Daniel.